we're going to carry on our Messy Church series, if we can have the first slide. And uh, Messy Church, because the Corinthian church, we're going through the letter of 1 Corinthians, was a messy church. Lots of issues, lots of problems that the Apostle Paul was having to tackle, but there was also much grace on the group of believers. The Lord was really powerfully working amongst them. And in chapter 1 it says, you did not lack any spiritual gift which is a pretty strong statement that that church was really blessed of God. Um, The great thing about preaching through an epistle means you can't miss anything. And all of God's word is nutritious. So I'm looking forward to tackling this one, though itself is not an easy passage like a lot of the Bible. And uh, hopefully at the end I can be very transparent with you and lead to your own transparent response to the Lord. Because you need to respond to God's word today. You need to hear God's voice through the Bible and say, what am I going to do about those words after I finish presenting them to you? So the title of my message is, Do You Not Know Who You Are? We begin reading today at verse 16 of chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. Remember, we're following on from the account of what it will be to stand before the judgment, the beamer seat of the Lord Jesus Christ as believers and face the possibility, and we mentioned this indirectly last week and the week before we mentioned it more directly, the possibility as believers to face the Lord having our building, things we did in this life, the works we've done, all burnt up as nothing before the Lord, and we have been exhorted in our reading and our teaching to build a good building. Not of corruptible things, but of incorruptible things such as silver, gold, and precious stones. Now, I mentioned this missionary before, but his short phrasing, his short statement summarizes that teaching. C.T. Studd, that great Cambridge scholar, cricketer, England cricket team, very famous in his time, give it all away to become a missionary, said this, only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that is, in essence, the teaching that's gone before and where we enter today's teaching from, that we can live selfishly in this life, all of us, but only what's done for Christ will last. They are the gold, silver, and precious stones that the Scriptures teach us about. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal instead. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And so we want to focus our mind on God's word, allow it to minister to us. Remember, it's your responsibility, not mine, to receive with meekness the word of God, to receive what God is saying to you through his word today. And only you can do that, and only you can allow it to have its work in you. The word will do its work if your heart is open today. So let's just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us through God's word. Holy Spirit, I pray as you inspired and breathed through many authors the scriptures, I pray that you would speak into our hearts today through the Bible in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that we would respond adequately and appropriately to the text, obeying God in everything. Amen. So let's read from verse 16 of chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? 
and the God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now let's remind ourselves of what we've already learned, that there were divisions in the church because of people's preferences of particular leaders and people's preferences of particular theologies and ways of expressing their Christian faith. It had led to a factionism in the church that had caused people to think one way was better than another way, was better than this way. And even the Apostle Paul was massively rejected by the Corinthian community and didn't really have a voice into that church of which he was the apostle. So let's study this passage now in more detail and look at verse 16 and 17 particularly, because in there there are the two major points I want to get through. So in verse 17, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Now we want to spend some time on this word temple before we get into understanding our response. So I'm going to have to move around the New Testament text a little so you understand that one word temple, particularly in the context. So stay with me on this. It's important, but it's a little bit technical. I'm trying to keep it simple. But um, ultimately, it's that there are two Greek words for temple. We've got one, temple or temple. It's a temple or a temple. In the Greek, there was two, and two are used. And the first one is Hieron, and that word's literally for a physical building, like the temple that Jesus disciples say, wow, look at all these stones, they're magnificent, they shine, and Jesus was aware of that beautiful temple. Um, so Hieron is the literal bricks and mortar, Herod's temple, the temple that our Lord Jesus spoke of. We know that he went through and scourged all the hypocrites and traders in there as well. That's the temple that Hieron is referring to. And there's another word, a better word, for temple. And that word is naos, N-A-O-S. And this is used when the New Testament scriptures speak about the temple figuratively or in picture language. And it's talking not about bricks and mortar when naos is used, but it's talking about a temple representing the place where God dwells. Now that can be a variety of things that we're going to explore now, but it's so key that you understand this and why John wasn't wrong to say what he said at the beginning and mum exhorting the church as well. Why I'm nodding at the side going, yeah, come on, they've got the spirit. Because let's make it clear to you that you can only have the presence of God in your life as an individual and we can only have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our church corporately if we understand naos and we understand how to respond to that truth. If you want more of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you do not follow this teaching, you will not experience or encounter God. Okay, this is where we lead to a transparent ending. If 
you do have your Bibles, it would help if you turn to John chapter 2 now as we look a little bit further at the idea of Naos and Heron. John chapter 2. No worries if you've got it. I'm going to read it. If you've not got your Bible, I'll read it to you. Don't worry about that. But if you've got a Bible, it will help you. Reading from verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and that's the literal temple that we're talking about, went up to the temple courts. And he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others selling things and at tables and exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. Can you remember our, amount, imagine our Lord making a whip? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No. Running through a temple and beating, <laughs> beating everyone up. <laughs> just find that slightly wonderful and slightly amusing, slightly alarming all at the same time. That Jesus, the Son of God, was happy to beat up on people that were misusing the Heron, the physical temple. <laughs> so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, called Heron. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who saw, can you imagine, can you imagine this? I know you can imagine it. Just tipping the tables over and whipping everyone, get out! I mean, this is, this is like violent. And of course, it's written, zeal for, for your house consumed me. Jesus was completely justified as the son of God to be annoyed with people abusing the sacrificial system, making money on the back of selling doves, etc. <laughs> Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered zeal in, for your house will consume me. Verse 18, then the Jews responded to him saying, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three words. Now, when he said destroy this temple, he moves, he moves from Heron to, to Naos. And it, he's talking there, obviously, about something different. This tells us, obviously, that the Lord is changing emphasis. Not talking about Herod's little temple, which was earlier in that passage, but talking about his own body. He's not pointing physically with his own... If he's not pointing physically with his own hands, he's actually pointing with his words. But I think he was probably doing this. We don't know because we can't see in the text. Destroy this naos. And in three days, I'll raise up. He might have been a little bit cryptic, knowing Jesus. He liked to be cryptic sometimes. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. So there you have it. Just a side point. This one's for free, by the way. A little side point off the message. Jesus did predict his resurrection for those of the people who come knocking on your door, peddling cults and mystery religions that deny the resurrection of Jesus and say that it was never in the Bible. Jesus never predicted that he rose from the dead. Here it is there and then. Um, and they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple, John the writer, that gospel says, but the, the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, if anyone has any doubt the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave, you have it very clearly predicted here. Destroy this physical temple, and I will raise it up. It's clear enough for everyone. You maybe have just been happy enough with John's commentary, but some people argue that black is white over the scriptures, and there it is for us. Verse 22 says, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said, and then they believed the scripture and the other words that Jesus had spoken. What I want you to clearly see from this, and 
it's round that one word naos, spoken figuratively as the temple of the Lord's body, that if we go to chapter 1, that you have a similar thing. Chapter 1 of John, it says that Jesus was the word made flesh, and the words are, and he tabernacled amongst us. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to John in chapter 1, in the chapter before that, was on the earth in the Gospels as we read of him. He was the temple of God where God's presence dwelled in that moment, the tabernacle of God amongst them. I hope you can see that in the word naos. And I'm intentionally going slowly. Some of you might be bored already, but this is important to build to where we're going. But we move on. And we jump a little bit further than our main text today to 1 Corinthians 6, which we'll look at in a few months. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that the word naos, and it's used more than once, is the temple of an individual's body. We've got sexual purity coming in our teaching. I think, wonder how many people get turning up that Sunday, Sunday morning when we teach through the word. But naos in 1 Corinthians 6 is about the temple of our bodies. Verse 19 of chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians says, Do you not know that your bodies, naos, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So again, this word is used literally of the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've learned about. And it's also learned about the fact that this is related to the individual believer's body, called also the temple of the Holy Ghost. And that means for you sat in your seat right now in Billinge, who are a believer, you literally are, and I know you know this, but you're very, very much likely to take this for granted. You are literally the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see a lot of people who are into their fitness saying, my body's a temple, not going to eat that junk. High calorie, low nutrient foods, keep away from the cake and the biscuits. And you see them all with the muscles, eat steak and protein supplements and all this. Egg shakes. They say the body's a temple. But it literally is for the believer, isn't it? Little side point, if we go into particular sins, what we do is we invite Jesus Christ into that moment of sin. Can you imagine that? Come on, Lord, come and join me in my sin. Because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to run ahead of ourselves and get into that in depth, but I did, did want to reference that we're talking about the body of Jesus, the body of the individual, but also as John quite rightly read before I came onto the platform, naos is also used for the church universal. That means all Christians on planet Earth who God knows as his. It's called that. There's a difference between the visible and the invisible church. The visible church are those who claim to be Christian and Christ followers. The invisible church are those who belong to God universally, and only God knows who the invisible church are. But this is what Ephesians 2 is referencing. Ephesians 2, verse 18 says, For though, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, consequently you, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. That's Naos again, holy temple in the Lord. And it's speaking of Jews and Gentiles in that passage coming together as one church globally. In the Lord, this is the temple of God, the church universal, in whom you live and you are being built together 
to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Now, all of these things about where the dwelling place of God is, whether it's Jesus, the Son of God, whether it's the church universal, whether it's you, the individual. But we, we move now back to our original passage, 1 Corinthians 3, and we ask ourselves the question, which, which naos are we looking at in this passage? Which temple is the Apostle Paul referring to in our main passage? Because that's important for our response. In 1 Corinthians 3, let me say something that might annoy you a little bit. It's none of the renderings I've said before. What this means in the context we're looking at, and it's apparent in the text too, that this is the local church. So the temple in the passage we're looking at is the local church. That's what Paul is meaning when he says naos. Look again at verse 16. It says, you yourselves are God's temple. Speaking of the local church, the Corinthian believers. If you don't believe me, go back to where we were in a previous teaching, verse 9. It says, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Again, speaking of the temple earlier on, I'm inferring that. So I want this to sink in this morning before we get to the main application, that the church in the passage we're looking at is the naos, the temple of God, collectively as a community. Do you know, just taking a side point, what this literally means is that in any dispensation of church history, in any time, what God has chosen to dwell in is not just the individual believer's life, but amongst the community of God's people in a local church, every local church where Christ is named. And so that is the design of God, that the church living stones in Peter's language come together as one for the purpose of Ephesians 2.20, the dwelling place of God in the spirit, 1 Peter 2.5, to be fitted together in the house of the Lord, where, where God can dwell. So the design of church is that the Holy Spirit can live, that's the design of the church, <clears throat> that God himself by spirit can live amongst the living stones in the creed. Now, there's many of you think, don't, don't teach me something I, I, I already know, Steve, I know this. But we, we know many things, but this is a message about much needed knowledge for the church, the kind of knowledge that we don't actually live by. If we really understood this truth, we would live differently in our church communities. We've read it, we, we, we get it intellectually, but we don't respond to it spiritually in the right way. And God wants us to get it, so we respond to it rightly. So what, Stephen? Why? Why does God want us to get this? He wants, what John was saying earlier in the, in the meeting, to live amongst us. He wants to sit on his throne in this church and be our God and for us to worship him in his temple. Amen? So can you stay with me to discover a little bit more about this? See, this is what God has chosen now to build up. This is what he's at work at building. See, Jesus said, I will build my church. This is God's work. This is where God makes us grow as believers. This is where God saves people. This is where God is glorified. And I do agree with Bill Hybels, who said the local church is the hope of the world. Some, some people criticize that and they say, oh, that's a load of rubbish. Jesus is the hope of the world. God has chosen the vehicle of the Christian church to be that which is the front-facing shop window of Jesus in all his glory. 
So much so that Jesus became a man physically and took that manhood into divinity when one like a son of man ascended to the throne and established a new race of people who would become his kingdom church on the earth. He has nothing else to build but this for his ultimate glory to the praise of his glory. Like the Apostle Paul says, you will be my glory and my crown at the finish line. Likewise, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, the adoration of billions, endured the cross. And so the church is entirely precious to God. So can you agree with me? This is a really important point. Tell you, if if we could really grasp hold of this and let it sink into our minds and into our meetings, I think it would be a very different place and community. A.W. Tozer says the people of God should come into the church with their heads bowed and their hearts still before the Lord expect an encounter. My words. can't remember the exact quote. The heads bowed is kind of an expression. Because they're expecting an encounter with the Lord. I don't care what chapel or building you go to. When you gather with God's people, we're expecting for God to show up. I mean, he's already there, don't get me wrong theologically, but to manifest his glory amongst the living stones. This is the design of God. This is what God came up with. We didn't come up with that idea as a church organization. The Lord designed that. See, this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Christ's body, his holy body that God had prepared for him, is called the holy temple of the Lord. The believer's body is also called, in the same word, the temple of the Lord. The universal church is called the holy temple of the Lord. The Lord considers these things very, very sacred. Listen now, we go a bit deep and you'll notice the Ark of the Covenant graphic on my slide behind you. If you look back at the book of Exodus, you'll see the tabernacle. You see the pillars being put out in an oblong building structure and the nine-foot hangings of twined linen which are put over those pillars. And there's only one door to go in through the eastern entrance. You had to go past the altar of the burnt offering, past the laver, and then you go through the door and found yourself in the holy place. Then you see that big veil. I mean, we sung about all this this morning. Well done, Mike. Then you see that big veil that you find talked about in the New Testament, the veil that was rent from top to bottom when the Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross. And if we were to go through that veil you would come into the place called the Holy of Holies. Can I ask you a question? Do you know what is called in the Greek, the Holy of Holies? There's something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Do you know what the Greeks have termed the Holy of Holies? Naos. you'll know your scriptures in this room, you'll know that there was only one man who was allowed to go into that place once a year. And if anyone else stepped into that place, they were put to death. Not by Jewish laws or lawyers, but by the Lord God Almighty himself. Yet that was the place that God wanted to talk with his people. It was a face-to-face thing. And tentatively, 
and with respect and honour to the Lord, I believe God has graced this generation and those before us after Christ's resurrection and ascension with such a privilege that no other generation knew that with face-to-face meetings for all. Feel his presence now. The Holy of Holies is an image of what God designs for all of us to privilege, in the privilege of God's grace to walk into through the veil of his flesh, through the new and living way to the holiest of all, according to Hebrews. To a place where individually and corporately we encounter the most high. Let me be clear, God is not schizophrenic. Forgive me for use, I don't know the language, or dual personality. He hasn't changed, is my point. Forgive me if you know people who are struggling that way. He's not confused. He's the same God. And so whilst we have grace in Christ to approach the holiest of all, we've got to remember who it is we're approaching and how he expects us to operate in relationship with him. The local church is to be treated with the same reverence as the priest, the high priest, treated the holiest of holies. It is a place where the psalmist says, the Lord is to be feared amongst the saints. Have you read that? He is holy. He is different is the right understanding of holy. He is beyond our understanding and his ability to do things. His substance is so great that we couldn't possibly conceive him in our natural mind. We only have flashes of his glory seen in the face of Christ in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. There's a head match. This is the place God wanted to talk with his people, the holiest of all. You don't need to answer this out loud, but do you believe this? I've been brought to to a place when I've read the scriptures in preparing for this, that this is the place that God wants to talk to us. God is a speaking God. Moses talked with a man, with God face to face as a man talks with a man. Once Tamron Klimworth, that great evangelist that I brought here a number of times from Africa, wonderful, wonderful woman of God, precious saint, said to the Lord, I want to know you like Moses did. I want to talk to you face to face. And the Lord interrupted her prayers and said, you've got something better. And she did not understand it. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, Moses was privileged to talk with me face to face, but he had himself covered. He only saw the back parts as I passed him by. He saw my glory. But you are one spirit with me. The Bible says anyone who unites himself to the Lord are literally one spirit with them. It's a bit like, I don't really understand it, it's a bit of a mystery, a bit like a marriage, the two become one flesh. There is a union with the Lord for the saints. So I can just be sat watching something on telly and the Lord's like, or I can say something out out of kilter in the flesh and the Lord's like, hey, 
Hey? That's why the Bible calls the Holy Spirit one called alongside to help, a mentor, a presence, God himself with us. And so being one spirit with the Lord enables us to live the Christian life. Nothing else will. You know, I've got a friend called Scott Lee. He's a wonderful missionary evangelist, apostle, precious brother. And he is a descendant of John Alexander Dowie in Zion, Illinois. And John John Alexander Dowie is a remarkable Pentecostal man. I think his roots were Australia. And um, the elders that flowed out of the ministry under John Alexander Dowie, because there was a time when Pentecostal leaders used to sit on the platform looking out for the flock. It would be a bit intimidating in English culture. Why are they staring at me? Why are those leaders staring at me? But they were keeping an eye on the saints. Who's hurting? Who's not able to worship for whatever reason? Who's coming that's demonized? It's a great posture for a leader to keep. You might see... Myself or other elders looking around, we're not trying to see who's doing well in the worship. We're seeing, is everyone okay? Are we okay today? Yeah. That's what I'm looking, looking about. I'm glad you're okay. Thank you. <laughs> Cheerleader on the front row. John, John, Alexander's, John Alexander Dowie and his church that came from his ministry is somewhere where Scott Lee worshipped. He said, do you know, Steve, where the elders used to sit? Feel his presence. I've not even said what I'm going to say. <laughs> Where the elders used to sit, the, there are oil stains. Where their hands rested on the chairs, as the glory manifested with holy oil, on the hands of the men of God. How precious! Why am I saying this in, in the context of this passage? Because. There is something of the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, that we've not yet touched. There is something deep that we can have if you want it. This church can have it. There are people who have prophesied from random places of Holy Spirit moves. But we, we are the gatekeepers of that privilege. I believe the Lord wants to touch this church. I'm not at all worried about numbers. My ego and my insecurities used to be bothered about that. I don't care at all, as long as people are okay. What I am bothered about is church health. And how are the people? And how is the church? Because I saw the beginnings of the Asbury awakening. Few people in a room before God moved in power. Saw the 120 in an upper room before God affected the whole known world. Numbers are never the best metric of a healthy church. The best metric of a healthy church is are the people experiencing individually and corporately the presence of God. Not good doctrine, not great inspiring leadership, not fabulous, we do have fabulous worship, but not fabulous worship, not great kids ministry, but is the presence of God on what we're doing? That's where it's at. Do you remember Janice Tong, those who've been around a long time? Do you remember her? She could play it, well, forgive me, Janice, if you ever hear this. I think somebody said she could only play about three chords, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> I think it's probably disparaging. But she worshipped the Lord. And the presence turned up. She knew him. 
We're people of presence. That's what defines us. How will, Moses said, how will people know be with us unless your presence go with us? How will people know? I will be different for all the people on the earth unless your presence go with us. That's what defines us. We're presence people. We should be. Having boldness, it says in Hebrews, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. This word naos is used in the book of Revelation too, apocalyptically. And it talks about the Lord God and the Lamb in Revelation 21 as being the temple of the believing peoples. So all of this word naos is used as the temple of God, and it points us towards this very presence of God and the place where he's chosen to dwell in the age of the local church, the universal church, and for the Christian individual. So let's look at the more difficult passage now, based on that understanding that God wants to dwell in people, amongst people, and in the church universal as well. Let's look at verse 17. It says, God will destroy those who defile it. Now, just for a bit of light humor, before we go into a more weighty arena, can I have slide two? So like this, if you've not seen any of the spin-offs from Jurassic Park, is Chris Pratt trying to tame three velociraptors. This is what happens when preachers tell the truth. <laughs> even, from, even from Christians. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't shoot the messenger. This is the Lord's word. And so I hope nobody turns into a velociraptor. I'm, I'm ready in my posture. Let's go into it. I can't duck this. We're preaching through the word. <laughs> if any man defiles the temple of God, God himself will destroy. Now, the word for defile we read in the earlier passage is the same word as destroy. It just means destroy. It could be corrupt. Now, you remember I told you that the high priest, one man, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and anybody else who went in and dared even be put a foot in that place would drop down dead because God is holy. I don't think people realize the seriousness of what it is to defile and corrupt the temple of God now. Now, remember what I'm talking about here. It's the local assembly, the local church where God dwells. Any attempt to reach out your hand to corrupt that local assembly or to defile it through whatever means, by words or deeds, and listen to what the Bible says, not what Steve Kerry says, God will destroy. Now, we tend to dilute God's words, you know, at times, but if you turn to 2 Samuel, and I know this is in the Old Testament, but it gives you an important illustration about the place where God dwells. It says in 2 Samuel 6, and there's a man called Uzzah that we read in about, or Uzzah. It says in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now that was just the place where God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. 
a gold box which was the visible sense of God's presence. He was enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. There you have it. God's presence was there in this moment, in those days. That was God's arrangement back then. Now it's the church, individual Christian, the church universal. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What is the point? Uzzah was too familiar with the things of God. And his familiarity bred contempt. And he thought that he could just put his hand out and because he'd been with the ark of God so long, he thought he could just steady it. But God struck him down. It says in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. I'll tell you, it makes you afraid when you see the fear of the Lord in this way. Even since I've been in this church, I know of two people who've opposed the Lord, three people actually, and each one of them have fallen down dead. Since I've been pastor here, his ways, his workers, the Lord is to be feared amongst the saints. I know of individuals in this church who in their vocation were opposed by godless people and they dropped down dead or they hit a tree in a car or the ceiling fell on their head. People are mentioning these phrases and people know those stories without going into them because the Lord is holy and he loves his people do you know when it says that you're the apple of his eye guess how close he is to him to you as God's people the apple of the eye is what you see in the reflection of a pupil when someone is looking face to face and so when you talk about the apple of your eye Talking about you close to God, your reflection in his eye. That's how close he's gazing on you this morning. And he looks to you with mercy and love and through the veil of Christ's flesh and the cross and the finished work and the blood. But nonetheless, there is still an order to be had. There are some that have an early bath. Do you know what I mean by early bath? When they don't live in submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit and God's way. See, familiarity breeds contempt. If there's anything in the temple of God in this local assembly that I or you have treated with contempt, we need to repent. Any person or practice that we've treated with contempt, we need to repent. Such thinking and behavior can lead to an early bath. Just look at Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5, that's a New Testament example. Just look at 1 Corinthians 11. Again, another New Testament example where they treated communion lightly. And it says some have even fallen asleep. We'll come to that later. He means died. Treating in familiarity and with contempt that which God has called holy. New Testament examples, two of them. 
Think again of another Old Testament example where Aaron and Miriam criticised Moses. God's anointed and they broke out in leprosy. Numbers 12. Now, there's great theological debate over this verse, church. You need to listen to me now because you could go off at a tangent with understanding this, particularly in the light of teachings that came before. As your pastor, I want you to know, and your teacher, I do not subscribe to the idea that this relates to God destroying you at the judgment. Other leaders do. Because it links and flows with that traffic of thought. I do not believe that. Why do I not believe that? Because I think the result is inconclusive. You cannot press the truth to that point and know for certain so you don't teach it as truth. What I think it does relate to is to warn the church of the seriousness of the way that w- with which we must consider the house of God locally. The reverence with which we must consider the temple that the Lord is building. Is this making sense? And so when it says God will destroy them, personally, I believe at the worst case, that can mean an early bath. That's what I believe. And I wouldn't want you to push it any further than that because if you start pushing it into the saved and lost arena, it will mess with your head. And because nobody knows the nth degree of how God will judge people on the last day, it's better to sit in the comfort of what came before where it says that the Lord will save you as one escaping through fire if you've lived selfishly, right? So let's get this in context. Hope that helps. Instead, we should take from the the teachings, as I've said, to not treat the local assembly without respect, its people and its leaders, and behave in a way that glorifies God in that place. The context of this passage, as I've said, is speaking about divisions in the church, related to the preferential choice of particular leaders and particular teachings that brought disunity, division, disagreement, and conflict, which grieved the Holy Spirit and stopped the flow of God's blessing. This can lead to the judgment I've already outlined. Now, let me be very transparent with you as I bring this to close. I as you have, have had a difficult three years, right? Yeah. It was hard enough leading through once in a hundred year pandemic and pivoting every second day. It was really difficult for me in autumn of 2020 when I had a car accident and I got particularly low. And for two weeks, a demon of suicide attacked me, two weeks. I knew it was a demon. It had come for me before. I dealt with it. But I do not have a suicidality. Don't misinterpret it, interpret me. I never once considered it. The enemy hates God's leaders, right? And I struggled with some of the situations that were coming up in leadership, and I did not handle it well. And I just want to say before the church that pushing back on email when I was hurting and pushing back face to face, wrought division in this house and was damaging to this local church. I didn't regret the words that I said. 
I regret that I did it the way I did it. And let me say, on the back of that, this led to a loss of the sense of the presence in this house for a couple of months. It's come back, thank the Lord. Because all of those issues have been dealt with. So anything that still remains in the culture that's gossip or criticism, it's been dealt with. Yeah. Right? Just to hold my hands up before the church. And I publicly apologize to this church for anything that I've done that has stopped the moving of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Because I consider the temple of God to be sacred. And I love Jesus, and I love God's people, and I love the lost. It's hard being a leader. And I'm giving you an example so that you would, too, weigh your heart. Or anything that may stop the moving of God's Holy Spirit in this house. Because we can only be responsible ourselves, and this is where the teaching must land, before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm accountable to God on that last day, and believe it or not, I take that probably more seriously than any... I don't speak for the pastor. I fear the Lord. So let me ask you the question. What have you got in your life that speaks against the people and the practices of this church? Do you think that's the way God thinks? Do you think that's the way God speaks? Do you know the full story about what you talk about? Because John Mark Comer is right. The greatest lie, second greatest lie, he says in his book, Live No Lies, is hearing one side of the story and believing it. <coughs> and that's what we do when we give our ear to conversations that don't know the full picture. And even if you've heard from both sides in an argument, you'll still come up with a third idea and your own interpretation of it. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not listen to an accusation against an elder. Do not listen, except for with witnesses, multiple. Amen? And what I'm saying here is pastoring you. It's loving, it's transparent, it's humbling yeah. for myself but it's with a deep desire for a healthy church. Amen? I do love you. I want the best for you. And I love the Lord too. Can you love me and forgive me back? Amen. Let me just pray for you. 
Lord, I thank you for this house, that you are in it and for it. And Lord, I bless you for the future years where Jesus Christ will move in power. Lord, I pray for everyone in this season who's been hurt in the COVID landscape, that you would heal the wounds and build your church up in this most holy faith, that we'd fear the Lord, but also know the Lord face to face, and that we'd know the usefulness that comes from being empowered by your presence, obeying you in everything for the glory of God. Amen.